0: J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
1: Welcome to Unfiltered. Here's the headline. The president has been very busy. On Twitter, that is. In the past 48 hours, President Trump has taken time out of his busy schedule of watching Fox News to bash the FBI, his own Attorney General Jeff Sessions, Crooked Hillary, Bob Mueller and his gang of 17 angry Dems, and the fake news media. He's tweeted out his support for Hawaii, his love of Ohio, where he spoke last night, praise for Senator uh, Lindsey Graham, who praised him. Happy birthday wishes to Vince McMahon. A rally shout-out to Kim and Kanye, and yes, even warmest regards for North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un. Conspicuously absent from the long and colorful list of mentions, Senator John McCain, whose family announced on Friday that he is ending medical treatment for a brain tumor he's been battling the past year. That's right. Not one tweet of support for his family. Not a single mention of the war hero and patriot who's given Decades of his life to public service. Not even a canned thoughts and prayers. Nothing. Here's the deal it doesn't get any smaller or pettier than that, and it's shameful. Plenty of others have, of course, expressed their support for the McCain family and shared their appreciation for McCain's many contributions to politics and service. It marks the near end of a very long and tough fight by one of the world's toughest fighters, a fighter for freedom, both his own and others for democracy at home and abroad, for fairness and civility in politics, and for his constituents, whom he served for two terms in the House and six terms in the Senate. As a conservative of a certain age, I've been deeply shaped by both McCain's politics and his principles. Even when we've disagreed, one could never question his motive, which was always country first. I've also had the honor of knowing his daughter, Megan, and I am in awe of her strength through this most trying chapter. I'm thinking of her and her family right now. And I hope that no matter your politics or your perspective, you are too. Uh, I wanna talk about John McCain, the man with some of my colleagues and friends who've also gotten to witness his unique contributions over the years. Uh, David Axelrod, CNN senior political commentator and former senior White House advisor for Barack Obama, uh, joins me on the phone. Axe, I have to start with, What is, for me, the most memorable of his political moments? It was 2008 on the campaign trail at a town hall in Lakeville, Minnesota, uh, a supporter of his disparaged uh, Barack Obama, your former boss. Um, Take a listen. I
2: can't trust Obama. I I, I have read about him, and he's not, he's not, he's a, um, he's an Arab. He is not. No?
3: No, ma'am. No, 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 ma'am. He's a... He's a, he's a decent family man, citizen that I just happen to have disagreements with on, on fundamental issues. And that's what this campaign is all
1: about. He's not. Thank you. Axe, tell me about that moment. What were you all thinking as you watched that?
2: Well, we were thinking, at least I was thinking, that's the John McCain we feared. Uh, right. And- the John McCain we so admired uh, when uh, when Barack Obama was considering running for president uh, because he was capable of that kind of moment, that brave, uh, gracious moment. Uh, and I mean, I was blown away by it. I, 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 I really it, it, it really took my breath away to watch that. And it yeah. made me feel good to be an American. Mm-hmm that a candidate for president of the United States would stand up in a forum where, you know, remember, it wasn't just that woman. But right. when he gave that answer, he got jeered by his own support for making that point. Yeah. And uh, I, I thought, what a big, decent, honorable uh, thing to do in the midst of uh, a presidential campaign so you know I, I think john mccain is an extraordinary person and having even you know yes i ran a campaign for another candidate who was running against him i never doubted who he was i never doubted uh, you know how deeply he cared about this country and how much he was willing to put on the line for it he'd proven it all throughout his life. And uh, so that moment, uh, to me, in many ways, reflected the essence of who he was.
1: Yeah. And, and you know, this was this was a feature, not a bug, as they say, of his political career, whether he was defending Huma Abedin against Republican uh, attacks on the floor of the Senate or the Khan family against Trump's attacks or, you know, it's- standing up to his own party on on torture. Somehow his moral compass always seemed to point due north. Um, how remarkable no, no a figure was he?
2: Yeah, well, is I he? think he was remarkable in American history. We've been blessed with figures like John McCain uh, over the course of our history. Uh, but he is, you know, he he is in that sort of American Hall of Fame. You know, yeah. I, Profiles and Courage was a slim vol- volume for a reason, <laughs> uh, you know, <laughs> because it's hard to Stand up for It's hard to stand up for your principles, and it, uh, especially against your own supporters, especially in difficult political circumstances. McCain, uh, re- he has reveled in that. We shouldn't speak of him in the past tense. He, he, he has reveled in yeah. those opportunities throughout his career. And you know, whether it was during the, the 2000s, you, you'll remember he voted against a tax cut that his own party's president was promoting because he said one shouldn't vote for a big tax cut in the middle of a war. He took on issues like and, 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 uh, climate change and worked across the aisle on those issues and took uh, a fair amount. Yeah. He probably wasn't a member of the Senate when he took up campaign finance reform mm-hmm. uh, with Russ Feingold, uh, but he seemed to revel in those moments when he yeah. when he could follow that North Star that you're speaking mm-hmm. of and uh, and 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 do for his country ahead of party. Uh, he, uh, he, you know, and and honestly, it's so sad in this epic in which we're in right now uh, to mm-hmm. lose someone who is the we should want in uh, in, in leaders yeah, in our yeah. country
1: I, I couldn't agree more um david axrod thank you so much for calling in and sharing okay. your thoughts tonight i, I appreciate it yeah. um, next up i want to bring in douglas brinkley cnn presidential historian douglas john mccain as i don't have to tell you very famously did not become president though he ran twice but very few politicians who don't become president rise to the level of national prominence that he has. Um, put that in perspective.
3: You're right, very few. I mean, John Glenn of Ohio comes to mind, the great Mercury astronaut, but uh, John McCain's going to be remembered um, forever in American history. He uh, uh, epitomizes duty, honor, and country. And it might seem a little old fashioned to say that, but uh, Uh, You know, he we we don't we're missing those sorts of people in American politics. Uh, John McCain loved this country so much. Mm -hmm. Born in the Panama Canal zone, comes from a family uh, of public service in the Navy. And, you know, when he was shot down um, over North Vietnam by Hanoi, that was his 23rd bombing mission he went on. Mm -hmm. He was always sending send me. Uh, And then, of course, his ordeal of being uh, beaten and tortured, bound uh, as a POW uh, is is just very dramatic.
1: Well, and how much does McCain's military history shape his role in American culture, not only being a a POW, but also how that informed his, his foreign policy, his views on torture, his views on the Iraq war, don't ask, don't tell. That's a big part of his legacy, is it not?
3: It really is, as you well know. I mean, he, no, the the Pentagon never had somebody that was a better friend than John McCain. Mm. He was a Reagan conservative, but he could criticize Ronald Reagan. He did in 1983 over sending U.S. Marines to Beirut. And when we lost, uh, you know, um, um, hundreds of Marines over there in a bomb explosion, uh, it turned out McCain was right and Reagan was wrong. Mm -hmm. Uh, But beyond that, John McCain never forgot Vietnam. He worked to normalize relations. There he went searching for for people that were left behind. He collaborated yeah. with other Vietnam vets like John Kerry and Max Cleveland, Chuck Robb, John, uh, you know, Bob Kerry. There was a whole class of Vietnam vets and they never forgot their service to our country in Southeast Asia and the, and the men and yeah. women who fought there.
1: And that did so much for our, our returning Vietnam veterans and our, our, our veterans uh, as a general population. Douglas Brinkley, thank you so much for your insight. Thank you. Next, with scandals mounting, Trump tries to turn the page, but will it work? I'll ask a Democratic congressman. If you thought a good night's sleep was going to settle the president's rage against his own attorney general, Jeff Sessions, you'd be wrong. This morning, the president wasted no time escalating his attacks tweeting, Jeff Sessions said he wouldn't allow politics to influence him only because he doesn't understand what is happening underneath his command position. Highly conflicted Bob Mueller and his gang of 17 angry Dems are having a field day as real corruption goes untouched. No collusion. Of course, the president is looking to redirect attention away from the rogues' gallery of advisors and allies ensnared in various legal issues, including the conviction of former campaign chairman Paul Manafort, the guilty plea of his former attorney, and body man Michael Cohen and the immunity deals of National Enquirer publisher David Pecker and longtime Trump Organization CFO Alan Weisselberg. But Trump's recent attacks on Sessions have some worrying that he's actually getting ready to fire the embattled AG. As shocking as that would be, the president might have some support for the move from his on-again, off-again golfing buddy, South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham, who just last year said there would be holy hell to pay if Trump were to do just that now however take a listen
3: clearly uh, attorney general sessions doesn't have the confidence of the president that's that's an important office in the country and um, there
4: after the election i think
3: there will be some serious discussions about a new attorney general
1: here to discuss this and more is democratic congressman from connecticut jim himes Uh, congressman The president seems to have some buyer's remorse when it comes to Attorney General Jeff Sessions. If you were Sessions, what would you do? Would you sort of keep your head down and just do the job? Would you resign? Would you try to reason? It seems like he's in a tough spot.
5: He's in a very tough spot. I mean, you know, knowing that he doesn't have his boss's confidence, I think what he's doing, and I'm I'm, I'm not, not usually familiar with Jeff Sessions and not particularly a fan, but I'll give him a lot of credit for standing up in a public statement yesterday saying, we will not be influenced by politics. That's a yeah. long, long tradition in the Department of Justice, and it was really good to see him say that. It was less good to see Senator Graham, who seems to be all over the place with respect to Donald Trump, yeah. in some ways opened the door to Donald Trump firing session. Because, of course, remember that the issue around firing session, quite apart from the popular reaction, is will the Senate confirm a new attorney general?
1: Right, right, which is a whole other, um, you know, can of worms. Are you concerned, though? I mean, Trump has a history of doing these, like, head fake distractions. Are you concerned, though, that he actually might do it? I mean, he, he basically tweeted a threat this morning saying he might have to get involved.
5: Well, I think he's got to consider a bunch of things. First of all, uh, firing the attorney general because you don't like an investigation into you, that is uh, obstruction of justice. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, people are going to say, but he has the authority to do it. And Of course he has the yeah. authority to do it. But if it is done uh, as part of malfeasance, if it's done for an unlawful or bad reason, it could be obstruction of justice. My guess is that some of the lawyers he has around him are probably talking to him about that. Yeah. And then there's, of course, the political reaction out in the country. You know, what doesn't get covered enough and what mm-hmm. I keep asking myself is you know we've watched him day in and day out for over a year now slamming this investigation which of course has been hugely productive. Mr. President there's exactly one thing that proves that you are innocent as you claim to be Mm -hmm. and
1: if you do away with the one thing Uh that can prove that you're innocent Uh you've got a real problem. That investigation right. Um, uh, Let's talk about that impeachment paradox though because Democrats are wrestling with this right. Um, Talking about impeachment may drive Republican turnout on the other hand to sort of ignore all of this um, would be to normalize this, and this isn't normal. What do you think? Should Democrats call for Trump's impeachment? heading up to, to midterms.
5: No, they shouldn't. And okay. there's a long distance between calling out behavior, which I think we're doing, yeah. and, and, and impeachment. And there's two reasons why I say, and look, I understand there's a lot of people out there who are emotional, who are angry, and they should be. Um, and I understand there's, you know, Steyer out there making a lot of noise. Look, here's there's two things. Number one, we should not move forward until we have all the facts. And the only mm-hmm. time we're going to have all the facts, of course, is when Mueller finishes his work and issues his report. Yeah. The second thing, politically, um, look, we just can't let this country go to a place where Uh, without facts, without the results of an independent report, impeachment becomes something that you just do when you don't like who won the presidency. And we just don't want the country in these polarized times to uh, to go there.
1: Um, While I have you, Michael Avenatti, he has announced he's forming a super PAC to support his candidacy for president. How seriously are you taking Michael Avenatti 2020?
5: You know, and, uh, I, I'd always said that anybody could be president of the United States. I'm not sure I ever believed it, of course, until 2016, when it turned out that anybody could be but president of the I mean. United There's States. So, you, know, you, don't, you, don't tell, you don't tell Avenatti he can't do it. You know, I, I guess what I'm a little sad about, I mean, I really admired the extent to which he was aggressively standing up to the sliming of his client. Okay. Um, now he has sort of fully entered into the political realm and put on a partisan team jacket. He is that his own
1: it, client. That makes <laughs> it, it pretty hard
5: for him to be you know sort of an outside commentator on this stuff but
1: do you think he has a chance
5: you know i i have long since given up talking about who has a chance one thing i'll tell you i'm sure we're going to see 20 25 maybe even 30 people showing a real interest in the in the in the
1: democratic nomination it could happen all right congressman himes thanks so much for joining me i appreciate it okay coming up as the midterms approach what should both parties be doing to drive turnout The latest Me Too shock is coming from inside the house. One of Harvey Weinstein's first accusers and a vocal Me Too supporter denies claims she sexually assaulted a former co-star while her alleged victim is sticking to his story. According to this week's bombshell New York Times story, in 2013, Italian actress Asia Argento lured 17-year-old actor Jimmy Bennett to her California hotel room, plied him with alcohol and forced sex. Importantly, the age of consent in California is 18. What we know for sure is Argento paid Bennett $380,000 this year as part of a deal to keep him quiet. We also know that this disorienting turn of events is already being used to discredit the Me Too movement. So what happens next is crucial. If Me Too supporters, myself included, assert that victims should be believed, then we must believe Argento's accuser. If we assert the system protects the powerful and re-victimizes the victims, then we must condemn Argento for taking advantage of that very system. Because if this important reckoning in America is going to survive, it must, above all else, be consistent. We'll be back in two minutes. In the Red File tonight, with all the news of convictions and indictments against Trump's friends and allies, the president's inner circle is beginning to look more like a police lineup than a well-oiled political machine. His former attorney and body man, guilty plea. His former campaign chair, convicted. His first congressional supporter, indicted. Also his second congressional supporter, indicted. (laughs) It's a far cry from the promised swamp draining that catapulted him into the presidency. Of course, Democrats are capitalizing on the news, accusing Trump of presiding over a culture of corruption, a tool they used quite effectively in 2006. But will it work again? Let me bring in my guests, former executive director of the New York State Democratic Party, Basil Smeichel, and CNN political commentator, Republican strategist Kevin Madden. Kevin, indictments, convictions, a president who hates his own attorney general. Um, can you see it piling up? There. Yeah, you see where I'm going. Can Republicans really hide from all of this? I mean, I know it's August, but... They're going to have to confront all this at some point.
6: Well, no? you know, you mentioned uh, 2006 or earlier. I was on the Hill uh, in the Majority Leader's office uh, in 2006. And I remember like trying to talk to reporters back then. Back then, it was only... 15 seats, that was a 15-seat margin okay. that we had to in order to keep the majority. And I remember telling rep- uh, reporters all the time, like, yeah, hey, you know, I don't think we're on the ugly side of 15 yet. Mm-hmm. We ended up losing about 30 seats. Right. So, you know, I think one of the things that Republicans right now will learn from the 2006 is that you cannot deploy hope as a strategy. <laughs> uh, you, they, they have to get very, very active right now in recognizing that there is a national jet stream out there in this uh, yeah. in political environment right now that they have to get out of Mm -hmm. and they've got to try and find ways to really just localize then personalize their races because if it becomes a referendum on things like Michael Cohen and the daily news cycle of you know uh, indictments or plea bargains, Mm -hmm. they're going to be in big trouble. It becomes a referendum. But if it becomes a contest between them and their opponents, Mm. they may be able to weather the storm. Well,
1: Basil, what do Democrats do? Because I know, I talk to Democrats in Congress, they want to run on policy. But some of this is too good to ignore.
4: Yeah, some of it's too good to ignore, but they have to resist the temptation to to engage it in a very strong way because you know, there aren't voters out there that don't know what's going on. They're watching it in news day in and day out. And if we get caught up in the sort of gossipy aspect of this, we we would be ignoring, to our peril, all of the policy that actually needs to get discussed. I actually think it's two-pronged. On the one hand, and I say this kind of as a rule of thumb, that voters will tend to forgive a liar but not a hypocrite. Mm. And if we actually can point Out <laughs> that the There's Republicans, <laughs> <there> too, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. and if there, if we can point out that this administration has been hypocritical and ignoring them, that's one thing. But we still got to come back and talk about economic issues.
1: Um, Kevin, let's talk about those immunity deals. Mm-hmm. tip of the iceberg? I mean, it seems like we're probably going to get some more uh, of these over the next weeks or months. Yeah, well, there's there's two
6: troubling trend lines in this, is, which is that the evidence continues to mount against the the uh, the, the, the president and so are wrong, uh, with regards to wrongdoing. Yeah. And then there just seems to be more and more people who are coming out and flipping against the president. Yeah. So the, inside the White House, that has to be very troubling. troubling. And yeah. what's odd is that this is a president who always promoted the idea of loyalty and and, you know, always talked about how this was something that he valued. And even those closest to him always, you know, talked about how the loyalty to the president was one of their key attributes. Right. 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 And now they're all Not engaged. So in, they're all engaged in self-preservation. And so, if we continue to see these these trends towards self-preservation, yeah. you know, you, if you know, inside the White House you have to worry a little bit about that.
1: Basil, um, some on the left, as you just heard me talking to um, Congressman Himes, some on the left are talking about impeachment. He thinks that's a bad idea. Um, it's a double-edged sword for Democrats, right?
4: It's hanging out there. It's like uh, the sword of Damocles. Like, yeah, we can mm-hmm. we're going to be able to live under that, but is it something that we actually want to engage regularly in the between now and November? I don't think so. Let's let us win back the House first, and then we can talk about whether any of these actions actually rise to the uh, level of impeachment. My fear, though. Is that as we continue to talk about that, even past the midterm elections, that it still clouds the economic message that we could be putting out there in advance of 2020. So I just don't want us to get bogged down in that. We've still got to talk about the the hardest thing about the
6: economic part of this, which is is, is that the economy is humming right now. If there's one thing that all voters feel good about, it is the economy. That is why I think you're going to see this pull by so many Democrats to really make this front and center, the the, the scandals Mm -hmm. or the the idea of Mm -hmm. corruption or or these distractions, to make that center of their their appeals to voters. And the problem there there is that you do tend to then make it more partisan at a time where they need to try and kind of appeal to the big middle. And
4: and and let me just add very quickly, one of the things that isn't discussed as much is the trouble that we will have, because Republicans... Americans were mm. so good at gerrymandering us out of large parts <laughs> of this city of this country so it's a it's an uphill battle but that's why i do think mm. it's it's easy for us it's low-hanging fruit to be able to talk about these scandals totally. but you know take maybe this take change the big d to a small d democrat uh-huh. mm-hmm. and and then focus on sort of bread and butter mm. issues
1: uh thank you both kevin basil yeah, for joining. Me. I appreciate it uh i'll ask a republican senator why his colleagues have been so quiet about all the president's scandals that's next August is notoriously and historically a slow month for politics. Congress is home. Folks are on vacation or busy with back to school. Not this August. Whether it was Omarosa and Giuliani making headlines in bizarre interviews or shocking legal headlines of Chris Collins, Duncan Hunter, Michael Cohen, Paul Manafort, the hits just keep on coming. And it isn't great news for the president or the GOP. With Democrats poised to take the House in November, Republicans are quietly hoping to just get through the rest of the month unscathed. On the latest controversies involving Cohen, Senate Republicans are being particularly careful, saying little, if anything at all, as if there's nothing to see here. But let's be clear, there is plenty to see here. It's not just that a number of Republicans in Congress have been indicted on felony fraud charges. It's not just that the president is lying to you repeatedly about what he knew and when. It's also, frankly, some of the policies that this president has somehow cajoled the Republican Party into supporting. So is this a reckoning? Who will pay the price and when? For all of this and more, I want to talk to Senator Tim Scott. Um, Senator, let's start with the latest news. Democrats are no doubt going to use all of this to paint Republicans as the party of corruption. Uh, How can the party defend itself against that claim?
7: Well, there are a number of individuals on the other side of the aisle that have their own problems with law enforcement and with integrity, so I'm not going to jump into that lake because there's not much that will be accomplished by throwing dirt either way. I will say that we have had perhaps the most productive Congress in the last three decades. If you're looking for progress in this nation from a policy standpoint, look no further than what we are finishing in August. Nine out of 12 of the appropriation bills in the last 18 months, we've appointed one-eighth, one-eighth of all circuit court judges. We've got historic tax reform done. We've got regulatory reform done. There's no question from a policy perspective, we are looking at the most productive Congress in three decades.
1: Well, yeah, I want to talk to you about policy um, for sure in a minute. But let me just, yeah, of course, it's important to me too. But let me just go back a little bit. Um, was that sure. sort of a whataboutism, it's happening on the left and so it doesn't matter that it's happening on the right, the corruption?
7: Not at all. I see what I said was very clear. Your opening comment had to do with what was happening on the Republican side. My point right. is that corruption and the lack of integrity happens in people, not in parties. And so when it happens in people, the parties pay the price. But without any question, what we're seeing today is is not new. It's unfortunate. We should all be uh, repulsed by things that are inconsistent with, with the best mores of our country. But the truth is that it is not a Republican silo that this is happening in. No question it's happening on both sides of the aisle. I'm not defending what is indefensible. I'm just suggesting sure. that if we're going to make progress as a country, we should focus on those things that unite us and bring us together. And I think Absolutely. our policies are doing that I think while my, there is my certainly point, a though, sideshow. My point, is though, I'm is that to.
1: Democrats are going to focus on that corruption um, as a strategy, sure. obviously. what is the What should the parties' defense B, is it just that Democrats are corrupt too?
7: No, I mean, I think if you took my two bites together, then you find a good strategy. Number one, uh, the the challenges that we see from a moral perspective or ethical perspective is pervasive in humans, number one. Number two, if you're looking for a strategy, it is the fact that we are the most productive Congress in three mm-hmm. decades. More Americans have more money in their paychecks. The regulatory environment that has been uh, taken down a, a notch or two is allowing for a sustained progress. We have a 4.1% uh, quarterly growth rate in the second quarter of this year. We're looking at perhaps a 50-year low in unemployment rate. Uh, if it's the economy, mm-hmm. stupid. The economy is giving us reasons yeah. to be optimistic. and yeah, in the I, mean, Senate, I think you'll see that play out.
1: Yeah, uh, and and look, I feel for you. I know I know lawmakers like you really want to be focusing on helping people and legislation that does that. Um, to that end, I know you co-sponsored a bipartisan uh, bill the president signed into law as part of the tax bill late last year that creates opportunity zones in local communities that are continuing to struggle, particularly with poverty. Um, I know I talked to Speaker Paul Ryan about opportunity zones earlier this year. Explain to viewers uh, what they are.
7: Yeah, Opportunity Zones is a way for us to take a look at this longest economic expansion since 1854 and figure out how come there are areas or pockets in this country that have not benefited from that economic expansion and do something about it. The Opportunity Zones legislation that I sponsored gives us an incentive to bring back capital into those communities, communities where I grew up in a single-parent household with lots of potential in the community, but the opportunities weren't close enough, here's a chance for us to bring it back. And the incentive is a 10-year deferral in your capital gains tax. The good news is if you're looking for a bipartisan opportunity, here it is. Myself, Cory Booker, Senator Peters, Senator Bennett from Colorado, as well as every Republican in the Senate voted for this legislation. So we are in good shape from a bipartisan perspective Mm -hmm. looking to tackle poverty. We should have a war on poverty, not on poor people.
1: Uh, No, it's 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 a really good idea. I I had a great conversation with Paul Ryan about it. Um, It makes it makes a lot of sense. Let's talk about some other um, policies, though, that have been in in the news uh, lately. Tariffs, child separation, a spending bill that raises the debt and deficit to staggering levels. Frankly, I don't recognize this Republican Party. Is it just that Trump has an R next to his name? The Republicans are sort of okay now with being a party of protectionism (laughs) and ripping families apart and wildly reckless spending.
7: Well, let's hit the emotional issue first, because I think it's incredibly important for us to to delineate or separate the difference. So Mm -hmm. on the family separations, the Republican Party came out aggressively against that policy, Mm -hmm. and because of that position, DOJ and the administration changed their their steps, which is a good thing for the American people. It's a good thing for the soul of the country, Mm -hmm. and frankly, it's the right thing, which is why it's a good thing for the country. As it relates to tariffs, the vast majority of us, from Pat, Timmy, to myself, have all come out and said, we do not like tariffs. Uh, Some have been more aggressive than others, but the fact of the matter is that you can look in South Carolina and see the negative impact of tariffs. What the president is trying to do is to reset the conversation globally, making sure that our companies have access to countries where today there are headwinds called uh, tariffs. Coming into those countries when there aren't tariffs coming into our country. So the unfortunate reality is, you know, Se, because you're brilliant, is the fact that when you pay a tariff, the only person that actually pays the tariff is the consumer. Yeah. So us heading towards a no barrier, exactly, in a a unique way, it really is. Mm -hmm. And for us to head towards a no barrier environment with Europe is a good sign, a good signal. I hope we get close to it. And China China is—we're uh, trying to use tariff and trade to deal with theft. Our goal should be to deal with theft, right. and the way you deal with theft is through legislation called CFIUS, which gives us the ability to, to hammer the Chinese when they're doing things that are not in our nation's best interest, and frankly, when they're requiring or compelling our companies to give them our pro- our, our intellectual properties yeah. in order to do business in China. So I don't necessarily agree with the tactic, but I understand the rationale.
1: Um, you know, the president campaigned on draining the swamp. He campaigned on being a law and order president. But, but this week in particular, he seems to be at odds with both of those. Um, your colleague, Senator Lindsey Graham, opened the door for a post-midterm ousting of Attorney General Seth Sessions. Um, after previously saying there would be holy hell to pay if the president fired him. So should the president fire Jeff Sessions?
7: Hey, listen, I think the president deserves to have an attorney general that he has confidence in. It's obvious he does not. I will say that Jeff Sessions has done so far overall a good job. It's hard for us to take a look at Jeff Sessions and say that he has not been doing what is in the best interest of the country. Yeah, <clears throat> I, I, I agree. But I think what, he will continue to do so.
1: So that's a yes. You think the president should fire Jeff Sessions because he should have a, uh, well, uh, an attorney general well, he's comfortable with?
7: Well, let me, let me say it differently, Okay. Uh, uh, Essie. Here's the truth. The, the president should have a cabinet that he's confident in and comfortable with. When that is not the case... It is his right to replace those individuals. What would I do if I were president is a different question than what do I think President Trump will do. I think President Trump has been pretty clear on what he plans to do. I think Jeff Sessions has been a good, consistent attorney general. So uh, for me to pretend that I have any skin in the game and any ability to persuade the president to do or not to do something— Uh, is not true. So I'm going to focus on what the president can do. And is it legal and and ethical and moral? I think it absolutely is. I think the Mueller investigation has to be finished before the president does anything with Jeff Sessions. And if that is his his prerogative after the Mueller investigation is complete, that's his prerogative.
1: Senator Scott, thanks so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Yes, ma'am. Okay, we'll be back after a short break. Warmest regards? That's how you say goodbye to a pen pal, not a brutal dictator. But that's precisely what President Trump said to Chairman Kim Jong-un when he abruptly announced on Friday that he was canceling Secretary of State Mike Pompeo's planned trip to North Korea. Trump tweeted... I have asked Secretary of State Mike Pompeo not to go to North Korea at this time because I feel we are not making sufficient progress with respect to the denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. He added Secretary Pompeo looks forward to going to North Korea in the future, most likely after our trading relationship with China is resolved. In the meantime, I would like to send my warmest regards and respect to Chairman Kim. I look forward to seeing him soon. Um, Yes, and please thank Mrs. Kim for the delicious cookies she baked. For more on this, let me go to former State Department spokesman, CNN military and diplomatic analyst, retired Rear Admiral John Kirby. Um, Welcome. Thanks for joining me. Thank you. What do you make of warmest regards? I think it's his sort of sophomoric
8: way of making sure that he can keep the lines of communication open, that he still wants to move the negotiations forward. And I think he thinks... That Kim is is wowed by that kind of flattery. I also think I see that a little bit of this is him giving himself a hug. Like he clearly, <laughs> he clearly doesn't like the fact that this isn't going so well. I think he was caught off guard at how hard it is to negotiate yeah. with these guys. And this is a way of him sort of telling himself
1: and his supporters, hey, don't, you know, this, this still matters. I haven't failed. I thought it was uh, stunning when yeah. I saw that. Okay, so what do you make of? Uh, the actual substance of this, pulling out of this visit. Do you think it's a smart move by the administration, or do you think it's sort of a a sign of a failed approach?
8: No, I do. I I do. Look, I think Secretary Pompeo is more than aware of how hard and difficult this is going to be. Uh, You know, I I talked to a Korea analyst uh, not long ago. He said, you know, negotiating with them is like playing chess with a chimpanzee. You make really Mm. clever moves Mm. to put their king in check. They reach across, grab your queen, and eat it. They (laughs) they just don't know a lot about how to negotiate. And so Mm -hmm. I think Pompeo understands that. I think Mm -hmm. President Trump is just now coming uh, to that realization. But I think this is a good move. I frankly don't think that they should have put Pompeo on the schedule to go anyway right now. Right Now, they've got a new envoy they just named, Steve Began, very well respected, was a policy expert, uh, mostly on Russia inside the Bush administration. I think that's a smart move. And I think now they should let him be the one to make these trips and to start doing this
1: this negotiating at that level. Interesting. Um, Hang tight because I want to move to another important topic, and that is the Syrian civil war. Uh, Bashar al-Assad announced last month a new offensive in Idlib province, Syrian opposition's last stronghold in the country. The UN has warned that the offensive will likely be a, quote, civilian bloodbath that could rival the humanitarian crisis of the 2016 Aleppo massacre. Um, These latest moves, uh, along with releasing death tolls for the first time, suggest uh, to me that Assad believes... There are no longer consequences uh, globally. Is he wrong? I don't think that no, I think
8: I think he does has made that calculus. And yeah. uh, and I do think now that he's had he's had Russia and Iranian support for so long and that he has been able to prosecute this war so brutally without much international sanction. I mean he's got economic sanctions on right. it. but look the Trump administration did strike twice in Syria yes. uh, to check his use After of chemical, chemical weapons. weapons yeah. So I don't think he believes he's totally without consequences, but SE he does know that they're in the end game of this war. Russia wants it's over wants it over. Yeah. And Idlib is really the last big big stronghold for right. the opposition so i can see why in his calculus this is a move that's worth making but i tell you what it certainly could uh, spark a real conflict with turkey turkey does not yeah. want to see Idlib go uh,
1: and they've made it very clear that this is a red line for well them. not to mention i mean there's talk that 700,000 refugees could pour right. across the borders um, syrian borders uh, i've seen estimates of 2 million maybe that- should be for Americans at home watching that's a national security issue here at home why, why is that well first of all it's
8: going to further destabilize the region look mm-hmm. turkey is already hosting 3.3 million yeah. the most country of any other na- nation yeah. hosting 3.3 uh, million syrian refugees you throw another 700,000 to 2 million right. that's going to destabilize turkey as well it's going to make that alliance much more tenuous than it already is yeah. so uh, i think yeah and and then of course you've got the syrians that are moving uh, those refugees that are moving into Europe. One of the worst refugee crises
1: we've seen since World
8: War II, destabilizing our allies and partners there. So obviously this has major consequences.
1: Yeah, uh, it's hard to convey with all of the news going on just how serious this is. And lastly, you know, half a million people have died in this conflict, as you know. Uh, Now our aid to Saudi Arabia and Yemen is is proving disastrous for civilians there on the ground. How do you think history will judge the decisions we have made in Syria and Yemen? I believe the... It will judge them harshly. It's a big
8: question, Uh, I I know. Yeah, no, I think I think it will judge them harshly, and I think many people, um, even you know, in the administration I worked in, uh, you know, have. Feelings of regrets like, yeah. that we, you know, we didn't do more. We could have done more uh, to prevent Syria uh, from getting where it is today. And look, in Yemen, it's a it's a complicated issue. Saudi Arabia has a right to defend itself, and it has been attacked from yeah. the border or the Houthis, across the border yeah. in, mm-hmm. in Yemen by Iranian-backed Houthis. Yeah. But the Saudis have not prosecuted this campaign with precision and diligence and determination. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad to see the Secretary
1: Mattis is sending a three-star general over there. To talk to him about that. Well, I'm glad you were here to talk to me about it. I appreciate it. Admiral Kirby, thank you for coming on. And to you at home, thank you for joining me. Please keep the McCain family in your thoughts and prayers tonight. I'd appreciate it. CNN Newsroom is up next with Anna Cabrera.
0: When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level.